We thank you for the word of God. And God the word. That ours is a living Lord. That in real life Jesus came and died and rose again. And Lord, I know that sometimes it's difficult when we sing the song, All of Me, and a voice whispers inside of our ear, Most of Me. And Heavenly Father, it is our desire in humility and submission to surrender ourselves to You. Lord, I pray that You would shine the spotlight of Your Word deep in our hearts. And you would speak to circumstances that only you know about. And that, Father, you would cause us to honor you, to serve you, to surrender and to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. First Samuel chapter 4. It says, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that you would think that you were at a promise keeper's event. No, that's not what it says. It shook so loudly that all the earth shook. Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid. For they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty Elohim. Gods. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter. There fell off Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also, the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Now when he came, there was Eli sitting on a seat by the wayside watching. 
for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the sound of this tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli. Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were so dim that he couldn't see. Then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle, and I fled today from the battle line. And he said, What happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there's been a great slaughter among the people. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy and he had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was with child due to be delivered and when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and her father-in-law and her husband were dead she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not fear, for you have borne a son. She didn't answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured. And because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. When I read this particular chapter again, I was reminded of a sad chapter in the history of the United States of America. Most of you will remember it. There was a man named George Stephanopoulos who was the advisor to former President Clinton. And he wrote these words after the president's relationship with Monica Lewinsky made international headlines. He wrote, quote, the battle is all but over. And I'm still mystified by the Clinton paradox. How could a president so intelligent, so compassionate, so public-spirited, so conscious of his place in history, act in such a stupid, selfish, and self-destructive manner. In a moment of honesty, I think each and every one of us has done something really stupid and really selfish and really self-destructive. And it occurred to me that the answer is really rather simple. We're not always driven by reason, are we? We don't always do what makes sense. Sometimes we are driven by selfish desires. We don't always behave according to what our mind tells us, but rather what our passions demand. To quote the words of Woody Allen, who fell in love with his own stepdaughter when he was confronted by his ex-wife and the mother of this girl, Mia Farrow, he said, the heart wants what the heart wants. The Bible teacher and the Bible teaches, particularly the book of James, 
it says specifically that we can't blame God for tempting us. But rather, here's what James writes, each one is tested or tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. I thought, that's exactly a great description of the human heart. When dragged away by evil desires. And how does our evil desires drag us in the wrong direction? And the reason is, it's our passion. You see, Israel also faced a major crisis of leadership. Remember, as we've been following along in the book of Samuel, Eli has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Remember in chapter 2, verse 12, they were worthless men and they did not know the Lord. Instead of attending the priestly duties in the tabernacle and offering the sacrifices, what they wound up doing was Stealing from God, stealing the offerings, taking the best, engorging themselves on the sacrifice, sleeping with the women who came into the tabernacle. And Eli, even though he disapproved of what his sons were doing, he, did, he confronted them in the meekest way and he did nothing to discipline them. And after repeated warnings, there was no repentance. And you'll remember the Lord prophesied the judgment was going to come. On his house. In all this wickedness. In all of this carnality. A young man was given a gift. A calling by God. You'll remember that Samuel was given as a gift to the temple. But then Samuel hears the call of God on his life. And remember what I told you the last time we were together. It was... Even though a mother and a father can dedicate their child to the Lord, only the Lord can call you. It is the Lord who called Samuel. And clearly, the Bible says, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And, and what was that word? Remember, the word was God prophesied judgment on Eli's house. And Samuel faithfully communicated God's message to both Eli and Israel. Now, here's what we know. Hearing the word is one thing, but doing is another. You can have a faithful mother and father. You can have, a, hopefully, a faithful pastor. You can have faithful people around you faithfully proclaiming the word of God. But having faithful people around you proclaiming the word of God, does that mean you're going to necessarily obey it? The next three chapters is going to deal with a group of people who hear, but they aren't always willing to listen. And doesn't that become a perfect description of us sometimes? We hear, we hear, we hear, but we don't listen. And the next three chapters relate turning points in the history of the nation. The glory of God will depart. The name of God will then be defended. And then once again, God's people will experience a remarkable deliverance. That's what you're going to see if you do yourself a favor and read ahead. But make no mistake about it. This particular chapter is a chapter about judgment. 
You know, Paul wrote in the book of Romans, chapter 2, verse 16, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. It impressed me once again that there is a God, a real God who has faithfully communicated a message. And the message of the gospel is grace and mercy, love and forgiveness, redemption and hope for those who receive Christ. But it's also a message of judgment for those who reject the message of God. You know, I'm grateful to Warren Wearsby for my outline tonight. I've pretty much stolen it from him. He talks about Israel's great sin in verses 1 through 5, Israel's great slaughter in verses 6 through 10, and then Israel's great sorrow in verses 11 through 22. Many years ago, I said, Sir, may I have permission to steal your outlines? And he said, Use them to the glory of God. Thank you, Warren Wearsby. Israel's great sin. Look at verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Clearly, he's a prophet. Clearly, he's been called by God. He communicates the message to Israel. And look what it says. From that moment, we're, we're jumped into this. Now, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer, or Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped in Aphek. The Philistines, by the way, first appear in our Bible during the time of Abraham. From the time of Abraham to the time that we're talking about, a thousand years have gone by. In the books of Samuel, the Philistines are mentioned about 150 times. The Philistines seem to have originated from an island that in Genesis is called Paptor, but what you and I would call Crete. They were a seafaring people, and they sought to control the area just north of Egypt all the way to the place that you and I would call Lebanon. So in about 1300 B.C., they came to what you and I would call Israel or Palestine. They occupied typically the southern section. They had five major cities. And from about 1300 B.C. all the time to about 1000 B.C., which is when this particular book is kind of taking place, um, the Phoenicians occupy the land. As a matter of fact, the word Palestine comes from a cognate of the word Philistia, which comes from this particular people group, the Philistines. Now, the Philistines are clearly unhappy over the occupation of the land by Joshua and the children of Israel. For those of you familiar with the book of Joshua, remember God told the children of Israel to go into the land. The land is already occupied by these particular people. They don't want to leave. Again, it becomes a type and a picture of the Christian life. You are called to walk in Christ. Jesus is supposed to be in your life. He's supposed to occupy you from your head to your toes. Just like the children of Israel are supposed to occupy the land, you are to occupy Jesus from Matthew to to the book of Revelation. You're supposed to occupy all of the promises of God in Christ. And so, Aphek was 
the northernmost Philistine city. It was about three miles west of the Jewish settlement known as Ebenezer, which means the stone of help. Shiloh is about 20 miles east of Ebenezer, or Ebenezer. And that's going to become important as we continue our study in the chapter. Now, all of this becomes interesting to me on a number of different occasions because, again, over and over again, Israel has been told certain things about how to relate to God, about how to relate to each other. I was shocked and surprised when our current president, before he was elected, said, which part of the Bible do you want to use to govern public policy? And I thought when he said that question, I'll answer that. How about if we use the parts of the Bible to govern public policy that deal with righteousness and justice, peace, of how we're to relate to each other in a way that is honoring and godly. But you see, this becomes the whole point. One of the reasons why the children of Israel had experienced such a problem with the Philistines, it was because they had refused to use the Bible to govern their public policy. And in verse 2, it says, Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel, and when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army. Now, as you can imagine, this isn't the first or the last time that Israel and the Philistines have run into each other. There is a battle taking place. There is a group of people occupying the land and another people called by God to occupy the land. They both can't occupy the, the land at the same time. And there is a battle. And in the Bible, obviously, it becomes a type and a picture of the battle of the Christian life. And you've heard me use that illustration over and over again. Paul talks about it in the New Testament. That there's the spirit and there's the flesh and that these war against one another. And I've used the illustration before of the man who said, It feels like there are two dogs fighting inside of me. One black and one white. And someone asked the old man, Who wins? And he said, The one I feed. There's a battle that takes place inside of us. We can feed the flesh, or we can feed the spirit, and the Philistines are in array. The Israelis lose the battle. About 4,000 men are immediately killed. In verse 3 it says, And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hands of our enemies. Now, you can imagine how perplexed the leaders are. Can you imagine the conversation? Are we or are we not God's chosen people? Well, yes, we are. Have we or have we not been told to occupy the land? Yes, we have. Why then aren't we winning this battle? Have you ever had that conversation? Am I or am I not a Christian? Hasn't God in Christ told me to walk in victory? Then how come I'm not walking in victory? Why is Israel being defeated by their idol-worshipping neighbors? 
How do we explain this? Is, is this does this mean that, that God is somehow mad at us? Now, again, the loss of 4,000 men in the single battle give the elders pause. They ask appropriately what's going on. But why didn't they ask the other question? Like, could this be because of sin and rebellion and disobedience? Have we tried to fight this battle on our, our own quite apart from the Lord? Is there something wrong with us? Is there something missing with us? Is there a hole or a vacuum? How is it that we're including God in the process? You, you see, typically, remember in the New Testament when Paul talks about Doing battle, particularly spiritual battle, were to put on the full armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. There are tools that God has given us in order to wage war so that we can walk in obedience and joy and victory in Christ. But guess what? They never ask the question, is there something in our lives or in our hearts or in the plan of God that we're overlooking? Is God displeased? Do we need to repent of our sin? Do we need to confess our sin? Do we need to cry out to God? Is it possible that we need to get on our knees and cry out to God and ask the question, is there some area of our life that you're not completely pleased with? And by the way, when you read the book of of, of Judges, and particularly the end of the book of Judges, in the first part of Samuel, we see adultery, we see homosexuality, we see sexual perversion, we see wife abuse, we see child abuse, we see brutality, we see gang rape, we see murder, we see kidnapping, we see drunkenness, we see mob violence, we see terrorist attacks, we see war. Don't you think at some point someone should say, well, wow, maybe we need to examine what's going on in our own lives. Maybe we need to determine whether or not there's some area that specifically God is targeting and that we need to address so that we can walk the kind of walk that God wants us to walk. And clearly, what the elders failed to do was to remember the terms of the covenant. Their shameful defeat was caused, let's just say it, by their failure to obey God. Their failure to obey God's word and their failure to obey God's law. Now, by the way, if there's something going on in your heart or in your life, it is okay for you to ask and answer this question. Am I obeying the Lord in my heart and in my life? Am I doing what Jesus wants me to do? Am I looking carefully at what the Bible says? And am I doing what God has asked me to do? As a matter of fact, in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 39, the Lord said, And those of you who are left shall waste away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands, also in your father's iniquities, which are with them. They shall waste away. There was a statement that was given. If you will do what I've asked you to do, guess what? I'll be with you. But if you disobey, if you rebel, if you neglect, ignore, pretend like I'm not here, 
It's not going to go well with you. In Deuteronomy 28.25, it says the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. This sounds like the Italian army. In other words, what he's saying is you will go to battle one way, but you'll find seven ways to give up. That's what it's saying. And you shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. Listen carefully. The Lord had given them clear instructions on how to wage war. And it's found in the entire chapter of Deuteronomy chapter 20. But instead of examining their hearts, instead of confessing their sin, instead of seeking the Lord... Here's what they decided to do. Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do what Moses and Joshua did. We're going to take the Ark of the Covenant into battle with us. Here's the deal. The children of Israel were trying to use God to accomplish their own purpose. But unlike Moses and Joshua, they didn't talk to God, pray to God, consult with the Lord, seek the will of the Lord. They weren't walking by faith. They didn't seek to glorify God. And now think about that for just a moment. I want all of the benefits of joy and peace and forgiveness and hope. But I don't want to do any of the hard work. I don't want to get up and pray and I don't want to seek the Lord and I don't want to obey Him in my life. But I want all of the benefits that religion seems to provide. You know, I think I told you guys a very long time ago of a reoccurring dream that I had as a little little child. I think I must have been barely in kindergarten. And barely in kindergarten, I used to have this reoccurring dream of monsters being after me. And in my dream, there would be a living room and there would be a coffee table. And on the coffee table, there would be a Bible. And there would be a long hallway and there would be doors on either side of the hallway. And a monster would break in and threaten me. And as a little child, I would take that Bible off of that coffee table and I would throw it at the monster and the monster disappeared. And that happened twice or three or four times. And then I had the dream again. And then the monster came at me and I picked up the Bible and I threw it at the monster and the Bible just bounced off the monster. Because it wasn't the content of the Bible, but rather I was using the Bible like a talisman in my foolish, childish idea. I had the idea that the Bible was a magic charm that could make evil go away. Not knowing the God of the Bible or the promises in the Bible. And this was part of what the children of Israel were doing. They began to think about the Ark of the Covenant in terms of religious superstition. Could they take the Ark in faith? Not really. Did God say, take the Ark into battle? No. They were acting on religious superstition. They were basing the idea that since God was with them in the past, God must be with them in the present. But the religious leaders weren't acting by faith or the leaders of Israel weren't acting by faith. They were acting by chance. 
And we're always making a mistake if we think of God in terms of dice that we throw or straws that we draw, hoping that we're going to get the grace straw. It is true. In the past, the children of Israel carried the ark into the wilderness. It is true in the past that the children of Israel took the ark and they marched around Jericho seven times, remember? And they shouted and the walls came tumbling down. But that's because they were walking in faith and obedience under the direction of God. But the leadership refused to respect what the ark really represented. Remember, the ark becomes a type and a picture of the very presence of God in their midst. That's why the ark of the covenant in the Old Testament becomes a type and a picture of the person of Jesus. The ark was made of two things, acacia wood and gold. It speaks of the human nature of Jesus and the divine nature of Jesus. And remember what was inside of the ark? We already talked about that too. What was inside? The Ten Commandments. The tablets of the law were there. What else? Mo- yeah, Aaron's budding rod. That was inside of there. The manna that they received in the wilderness. It becomes a type and a picture of God's instruction. God's presence. God's word. But the religious leaders turned it into a religious relic. A cross that they could kiss or a candle that they could light or a statue that would remind them that they needed to sell their real estate. You understand what I'm saying? The Bible makes it abundantly clear that God isn't a force that we manipulate in order to get our way. And that's exactly what they were doing. And so in verse 4 it says, So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. Okay, I already told you. How far is Shiloh from the battleground? Twenty miles. They go to Shiloh where the tabernacle of the Lord in the wilderness resides so that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts who dwells between the cherubim. Remember, on the top of the mercy seat, there were two angels pointed in either direction. This is the place where the high priest, one time a year, would walk in and offer the sacrifice. Who has access to the Ark of the Covenant. Only the high priest. And when? Only once a year. But this is an emergency. This is an emergency. This is an, this is an issue of life or death. You don't understand. I, I know there are religious rules and I know that there are prescriptions and I know that there, there's a certain way that the Bible says that things have to be done. This is an emergency. Isn't it typically an emergency when you have to disobey God? You don't understand God. This is an emergency. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. How did they get it? Are they the high priest? Did they have the right to go into the tabernacle and take the Ark of the Covenant? Clearly, if God said, 
send it, that would be one thing. Did Samuel say, send the Ark of the Covenant because you've all prayed, confessed, repented? No, none of that happened. The two wicked priests carry God's holy Ark. And the people want God to bless their endeavor. But God has already made up his mind. God is going to judge these two wicked, sinful, selfish men. I want you to think about what's happening. These people are hoping that the presence of the religious icon will save them. Will save them from their enemies. What's changed? Do people still use superstition to try to use God? Use religious icons, religious images? They, they use them to try to manipulate God. Do our sins and wickedness, does it cause God to turn away from us? This is what the Bible says, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid His face from you, that you will not hear in Isaiah 59.2, it says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me, it says in Psalm 66.18. But if I, if I play Bible roulette, then look, I'll, I'll just I'll sort of stop and, 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 and then I'll... And Judas went out and hung himself. Well, that's not what I wanted. Go and do likewise. Oh, the Bible isn't a book that you play Bible roulette with. You don't cut and paste in order to try and fit the circumstances. What you need to be able to do is to, to, to enter into friendship and relationship with God and cry out to Him. It's very interesting to me. People use God like a magic lamp. Long ago... <laughs> It was Bob Dylan who said, do you really think, do you know what God requires? Do you think he's just an errand boy to satisfy your wondering desires? When are you going to wake up? The Lord isn't a lamp that you rub in order to get your wishes. Few things have greater appeal to the carnal person, to the selfish person, to the sinful person, to use God, to exploit religion, to control and manipulate God, to create a God whose presence we can control, a God who will do our bidding. People all will often say to me, you can't put God in a box. It's true. But God put himself in a box. The Ark of the Covenant. The very presence of God. God put himself in a box of flesh. He became a real human with a brain just like yours and eyes just like yours and a nose and a mouth. He was completely human, as human as you. In every single way. The Bible says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten. One Bible writer 
said, some find it difficult to distinguish between the Bible, which is the written word, and the eternal God, who is the living word. They think that they've captured God in the scriptures and they try to control God and manipulate people with their interpretation. You know what? I agree with him. The reason why I agree with him is because the Bible and the promises aren't the Bi- in the Bible as a formula in order for you to manipulate God. I'm always suspicious when I hear someone say, you can have what you say. You can have your way with God. My heart sinks when I hear people say, when you've done everything God has asked you to do, He must honor your request. Do you understand how stupid that is? Do you really think that you can control God? Do you think you can manipulate Him? Do you think you can trick Him into doing something that is contrary to His character? That is in opposition to His Word? I had a person come to me and say, You don't understand. This was a guy who was... Basically, he'd left his wife and he had entered into a sinful relationship with another person. And this person wickedly said to me, Don't you understand? God sent me this woman. Are are you seriously going to sit there and tell me that God sent this person into your life so that you could betray your wife and enter into an adulterous relationship? And you would think like, the lights would go on. You would think that he would go, what have I done? This is wicked and wrong. But it was as if there was no one there. Because he wasn't thinking. He wasn't responding to what the Bible says. In verse 5 it says, And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. You know what this is? Misplaced confidence. Hoo-hoo, the religious image has shown up. The ark may have been present in the camp, but you know what wasn't there? The Lord. The Bible may be present on your desk or on your bookshelf. You may carry it. You may bring it to church. But unless you're willing to open it and read it and believe it, it just becomes a symbol. You can go to church. But going to church isn't what provides the mechanism for a right relationship with God. The thing that provides a mechanism for a right relationship with God is a willingness to turn from our sin and turn to the Savior. There's nothing worse than misplaced confidence. And the shout bolstered their spirits, but it was no guarantee of victory. And you can shout and you can scream and you can shout hallelujah and you can foam at the mouth and you can hang from the chandeliers and you can say, bless God. But if you are doing that and all the while 
living a life of disobedience and rebellion, it isn't going to give you victory. And the net effect of Israel's shout was to bolster and reinforce the courage of Israel's enemies. Look what happens. We go to the great slaughter. In 1 Samuel 6 it says, Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does that sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. Because you know what? The people in the world are just as silly and superstitious as the people in the church. And in verse 7 it says, So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. And by the way, it never had, ever happened before. In verse 8, Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty Elohim? It's translated in the New King James, small g-o-d-s, because in the context, it is the misguided misperception of the Philistines. These are the small g-o-d-s who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Is that true? Is this just some localized deity that's unique and peculiar and specific to the Hebrews? Or is this the true God, the self-existent creator? Is this the God who occupies eternity? Is this the God who knows the beginning from the end? Is this the God who walked with Adam and Eve in the garden? Is this the God who slew an animal and covered them in skins? Is this the God who instructed Moses in the law, is this the God who instructed Joshua? Is this the God who told him to occupy the land? Is this the God who smote Egypt when they refused to let the children of Israel go? And the answer is yes. But not in their mentality. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. But what's the difference between this time and that time? Did God tell Moses to confront Pharaoh concerning his plan and purpose to redeem the children of Israel? The answer is yes. Did God tell Moses, when you speak to Pharaoh, you say these words, let my people go? And the answer is yes. Did God ever tell them to take the Ark of the Covenant and take it into battle with them? The answer is no. Are you seriously trying to suggest that God may not be on my side? That's exactly what I'm saying. That God isn't on your side. If the God is a God of superstition, if you believe that God is a lucky charm, if you believe that God is a magical being who will do whatever you want because that's exactly what you want. I'm here to tell you that that isn't the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a sovereign God. He is the uncreated creator who is holy and majestic and righteous and just and loving and merciful who has a plan and a purpose. And he's revealed himself in the Bible and he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus. And he won't do what you want him to do simply because that's what you want. 
Your job is to figure out what He wants. And so look what it says in verse 9. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrew so that they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. Do you understand what's happening? The Philistines are getting a pep talk. By the way, if the true God of heaven wants to defeat the Philistines, what will happen? They will be defeated. It says in verse 10, so the Philistines fought and Israel was, read it, defeated. And every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. I want you to understand that that number. 30,000 people. Not counting the 4,000 people who had earlier died, died in a single day. Because they were under the religious superstitious idea that God was with them. Do you know how many people died in Vietnam? 58,000. That's over the course of the entire war. 30,000 people died in this single day. In Psalm 78, the psalmist wrote in verse 56, Yet they tested and provoked the Most High God and did not keep His testimonies. You know what they did? They were tempting God. They were testing God. The Philistines were afraid at first. Then they were determined that even if God was in the camp of Israel, they were going to be brave soldiers. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, God had forsaken his people. The Philistines had an easy victory, unquote. My heart breaks when I see people who want so desperately to fulfill their passions. And so they embark on a course of drunkenness, of drug abuse, of sexual satisfaction. They ruin their lives. They ruin their marriage. They destroy their family. And then they wonder, well, how did the devil get a foothold in my life and in my marriage and in my family and in my circumstances? What happens when people trust presumption and superstition instead of repentance and faith? What happens when we repeatedly test the Lord? What happens when we foolishly say to ourselves, it doesn't matter, God doesn't care, He's going to make an exception in my case? What happens when we refuse to keep his testimony? Israel should have known that God's presence depended upon their obedience to his word. So Hophni and Phinehas, these ungodly priests, and their presence won't bring victory or blessing, but it's going to bring judgment. And that's what will happen when people trust in superstition and myth. The shell, the religious shell instead of the heart and soul of what it means to have a right relationship with God in Christ. Again, Wiersbe writes, God will not be used 
just to make sinful people achieve their own selfish purposes. God's promise is, them who honor me, I will honor. Well, wait a minute, you know, I just I thought you just said you can't say to God, them who honor me, I will honor. Hey, I'm not t- talking anything other than what the Lord is saying. Here's, here's the promise of the Lord. Them who honor me, I will honor. What does it mean to honor God? I think it means to obey Him, but doesn't it also mean to have a, at least some idea of His character? Doesn't it mean to have some idea of what kind of a God is God? Doesn't it mean to honor Him in such a way that you acknowledge that He is God and you are not, and that you live and exist in order to glorify Him and not the other way around? And then we see the sorrow. Look at verse 11. Also, the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Here's what you do. In that particular section, you put in parentheses, chapter 2, verses 27 through 36, prophecy fulfilled. Did God say that the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, would die in a single day? Did they die in a single day? Here's a question. Kind of a hard one. When God says something's going to happen, will it happen? Yeah, it really is a simple one, actually. It really is that simple. And in verse 12 it says, Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line that same day, and he came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. I remember what I told you earlier. How far is it to Shiloh? How far has he run? Almost a mini marathon. Twenty miles he has run. And when he gets there, he has the signs of mourning. His clothes are, ter- are torn. Dirt is on his head. In verse 13, it says, Now when he came, there was Eli sitting on a seat, probably outside of the tabernacle, in the place of judgment, by the wayside, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. Here's what we discover. The safety of the ark is Eli's main concern. And when he's thinking about the safety of the ark, it says in verse 14, when Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, what does this mean of this tumult? And the man came quickly and told Eli. Now, again, we get this little note. Eli's 98 years old. His eyes are dim and he couldn't see. He's old. He's blind. And let's just be honest. He has a weight problem. Now, remember... He's old, he's blind, and he has a weight problem. In real life, he is old and blind. But he becomes, again, a type and a picture of a religious representation. He is old, and he is blind. And the person communicates what he believes to be what is important in order, it says, Then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle. I fled today from the battle line. And he says, What happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. We lost. There's been a great slaughter. There's been catastrophic loss of life. There's also 
your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And by the way, the ark of of God has been captured. Then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy and he judged Israel 40 years. The end. That's his legacy. He fell over. He drops dead. Some have suggested that Eli was obese because he lived high off of the proverbial hog. But remember, hogs aren't kosher, so he didn't live high off the hog. He probably lived high off the calf, the lamb. He lived a sedentary life. He lived a self-indulgent life. But to his credit, at least he cared about the Ark of the Covenant. And it says, Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was with child due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the Ark was captured, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor pains came upon her. Now, in order to get the ark, remember what I said, the two sons have to enter the Holy of Holies and they have to obtain it and then they have to take it inappropriately into battle. But here's the deal. Is the ark of the covenant the mercy seat of God on the earth? The answer is yes. Had they cheapened this important symbol of God's presence? Yes, they did. The fact that they cheapened the important symbol of God's presence, did that mean that God was no longer on the throne? Was God still on the throne? Was God still in heaven ordering and orchestrating the affairs of men? Does God know exactly what he's doing still? By the way, five times between verses 11 and 22, you'll see the phrase, the ark of the God, the ark of God was taken or is taken. Five times, taken, verse 11, taken, verse 17, taken, verse 19, taken, verse 21, taken, verse 22. Do you think that the text is trying to indicate something to us concerning how important this little issue is? I think so. You see, the ark had never fallen into enemy hands. Remember, the ark was holy. It was the most important piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies. So how in the world, how in the world could God allow this to happen? The Jews had forgotten that the ark of God was God's throne in Israel, but only if Israel was submitted to him, obeying him, obedient to him. You see, the cross will become a meaningless symbol. Unless you have a real friendship and a relationship with the person who died on that cross. Your Bible will be just another book unless somehow you can open the pages and read the text and allow the Savior access to your heart and the circumstances of your heart. You see, I'm going to suggest something to you. Was it a sin to take the Ark of the Covenant into battle? In this case, it was. 
Why? Because they did so in rebellion and disobedience without the instruction of God. Is it a sin in general to take the Ark of the Covenant into battle? No, Moses did. No, Joshua did. If they had repented of their sin, if they had sought God's will, if they had sought God's instruction, and then God commanded them to do exactly that, then it would have been the most appropriate thing to do. And that's the challenge that we have as Christians. It's to open up our Bible and read the promises that are therein contained in such a way that we can apply them to our lives. The loss of the ark raised a lot of disturbing questions. Well, what does this mean? The ark is gone. The ark is gone. Does this mean that God has lost his power to protect himself or his people? The ark is gone. Did the loss of the ark mean the Philistines now captured God? What had Israel done to deserve such a disaster? We know the answer. By the way, imagine this. Terrorists come to Washington, D.C. They go into the Smithsonian or wherever the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution is housed. The Declaration of Independence is burned. The Constitution is taken and destroyed. Would that be catastrophic for America? I think so. But would, would it make our freedom go away? Is it the words that are on the Declaration of Independence? And is it the words that are contained in the Constitution? And if every Declaration of Independence is destroyed, if every Constitution was destroyed, would there still be something inside of you that would long for freedom? If they took away your Bible and they burned every single one, if they took away your access to the promises of God, would the promises of God still be real and would they still be true? They would still be real. And they would still be true. How is it possible that God allowed the wicked hands of Eli's grubby children to get their paws on the holy vessel and lose the ark? Because God was going to use even that to forward his own plan. God was going to use the ark to teach the Jews and the Philistines some important lessons. That's what we're going to learn the next time we get together. By the way, the name Ichabod means no glory or where is my glory. The word departed at the end of the chapter in verse 22 where it says, and she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. The word departed can also be translated gone into exile. The presence of God's glory in the camp was the sign of God's favor. But now the glory was gone. By the way, when King Solomon rededicated the temple, the or dedicated the temple, the glory of God returned. But before the destruction of the temple, you'll remember that the prophet Ezekiel saw the glory leave the temple and the city in Ezekiel chapter 8. Ezekiel also saw a future temple in the millennial kingdom when the glory of God returns. The glory of God doesn't appear again until the coming of Jesus. 
when Jesus is born, angels show up. A light fills the sky. And the Bible says, And we beheld His glory. The the glory as of the only begotten of God. Full of grace and full of truth. Israel's history is a roller coaster ride. Have you noticed that? It's a roller coaster ride of receiving the glory of God and then losing it. Receiving it and then losing it. When do they receive it? When they act in humility and submission and repentance and love and obedience. Things are pretty good. When they act in rebellion and disobedience, how do things go? Pretty bad. I know the question you should be asking. What happens if in humility and obedience, to the best of my ability, I am serving the Lord in my mind and in my heart and in my life? And things still aren't going the way that I I'd hoped that they would. Is there a God who can be trusted? You know, in Psalm 78:60, this was such a catastrophic event. It made a lasting effect. The writer Asaph said, So that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had placed among men, and he delivered his strength into captivity and the glory into the enemy's hand. The Lord, by the way, abandoned the tabernacle at Shiloh, and then later the tabernacle itself would be allowed to be destroyed. By the way, the Philistines will eventually return the ark. That's what we're going to discover. And why will the Philistines return the ark? Well, that's what we'll talk about when we meet again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that wicked behavior results in judgment. Religious superstition, using God, corrupt leadership, sexual immorality, stealing from God. Lord, we know that these things are all bad things. And Lord, we pray that you would examine our hearts. Lord, we pray that we would ask maybe the most important question. Lord, am I trying to manipulate you in order to get my own way? Lord, am I trying to do things or not do things, give things or withhold things in such a way that I'm trying to get you to do what I want you to do instead of, Lord, repenting in humility and sorrow over my own sin and a willingness to serve you, to ask the question, not, Lord, give me what I need or want, but rather, Lord, what is it that I can do to glorify you. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would look upon us with mercy and kindness and love. Lord, we, we know that you don't tolerate wicked behavior. And so, Lord, we pray that, that you would root out those things in our life that are dishonoring and displeasing to you and that, Lord, we can walk in grace and mercy. And Lord, we pray that your grace 
and your truth would fill our hearts. Lord, we pray that the leadership of Jesus and the lordship of Jesus in our lives would not be a debate, but rather an event that we would simply and specifically submit to you, Lord, and the plan that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.